You're listening to Fighting Terror, the podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Crate, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Musa Burekba, who is a research fellow at the Barcelona Centre for International Affairs and adjunct professor at Blancarna Faculty of Communication and International Relations at the University of Barcelona, where he teaches international relations in the MENA region, violent radicalization and CVE policies. At CIDOB, Musa focuses on international relations in the MENA region, democratization processes in North Africa, Arab youth and violent extremism in Europe and North Africa. His research also covers Islamophobia in Western countries. Today's podcast episode will focus on Islam and terrorism in the West, with a specific reference to political Islam, Islamist terrorism and the Great Replacement Theory, as well as Islamophobia. Musa, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, it's a pleasure. First of all, um, I'd like to kick off by looking at the theory um, behind political Islam. So, you know, what is usually meant when people talk about political Islam um, and how does it differ from from Islam as a religion? Um, is there sort of a core notion that is at the heart of political Islam that differs from um, the core religion? So I would say that when people usually talk about political Islam, they refer to the use of Islam uh, for political purposes in general. So uh, under that perspective, Islam is not seen as a set of belief, rituals and practices, but rather as a set of principles, uh, as a set of values and norms, which should regulate life in society, meaning that uh, these principles should regulate life in the social sphere, but also in the political sphere, the economic sphere, the cultural sphere, etc., etc. So the underlying idea behind political Islam is that the decline of uh, Muslim civilization is mainly due to the lack of, I would say, proper Islamic collective norms and, and regulations, but also the lack at the individual level of truly authentic uh, Islamic practices. So... Um, Political Islam developed as a political uh, theory of a just society um, that is based on this uh, search for Islamic authenticity. So I would say that Islam is a religion, a set of belief, uh, while political Islam encapsulates uh, the political use of uh, that religion with a view to get access to power and to establish uh, an Islamic society. Mm-hmm. And I suppose um, uh, quite a lot of um, academic reflection uh, or focus on Islam really started in Europe in the 1960s. And at the time, that was very much linked to dynamics around migration when obviously Europe saw many migrant populations settling settling in Europe at the time. 
Um, how did that sort of begin, the, the, the start of that focus on Islam, how did that develop and how has it evolved, would you say, in, in the intervening period? So I think that, uh, as you've said, we, we focused on Islam as uh, originally as uh, a religion that comes from abroad together with the first waves of uh, immigrants in the 20th century. Um, and actually, since then, although uh, significant research has been done in, in this field, in the public discourse, but also in the media, Islam is almost consistently depicted as a religion that comes from abroad and practiced by immigrants. And if it's not immigrants, it's their sons and daughters, right? We talk about first, second, third, even fourth generation of immigrants, as if uh, uh, these European Muslims uh, were more Muslim than uh, European and, and more tied to migration than to the current society where they were born and, and raised. So, uh, and, and, and for instance, we, we rarely talk about European Islam. We would rather say uh, Islam in Europe or uh, Islam in France or in Germany. And I think that although it looks like a detail, it is not. So, um, under that perspective, although uh, although in the past decades we've had uh, whole segments of the immigrants who settled here, uh, having their sons and daughters who were born and educated here, um, when we talk about the media, especially when we talk about Islam, sorry, especially in the media, we often deal with controversial issues uh, that have to do, let's say, with one specific case that has to do with a girl wearing a hijab at uh, high school or with a terrorist attack committed by somebody who claims to be uh, Muslim. And the debates that sur surround this uh, have to do with Islam and violence, Islam and women, uh, Islam and so on and so forth. And actually, we still see Islam as the religion of the other, overlooking the fact that uh, here, where I am in Spain, uh, the Muslim presence uh, has lasted for over seven centuries, right, historically speaking, and that you have millions of, of uh, European Muslims today. So I think that we are still failing to take that uh, into account today and we keep on uh, relating it and conflating Islam with migration. Mm -hmm. I assume then that that creates a sort of a, a them and us uh, or an othering of of Muslims in Europe. Is that something that, that, that you would agree with or that you've observed? Absolutely. Actually, uh, scholars who worked on uh, Islam in Europe underlined that towards the 70s and the 80s, actually in parallel with the, uh, the settling of uh, Muslims in the UK, in France and in other northern European countries, uh, we move from a kind of biological racism, right, where the Muslim was the inferior one that belonged to another race, which was the uh, heresy from the colonial era to what some scholars have termed uh, cultural racism. So that's not really biological, but it's just because you come from another culture, another religion that is uh, regressive. And actually, it's, it's pretty interesting because if I look at the past two decades, we've been talking less and less about Pakistanis minority in the UK, 
Algerian minority in France or Moroccan minority uh, in Spain. But, and we talk more and more about Muslims everywhere. And mm-hmm. uh, we see that this kind of myth of Islamization of, of Europe has contributed to conflate uh, the faith, in this case, the fact of being Muslim, with migrants. So the fact of speaking about Muslims today in many cases, is a way to keep otherizing the other, although the other is now part of Mm. our societies. It's really interesting. Do you see then political Islam uh, playing a part in that or playing a role in that in terms of how the public discourse has evolved? Is Is it distorted by or is it influenced by political Islam as distinct from the, the Muslim faith? I definitely think that there is an impact uh, not only uh, of political Islam itself, but the way that political Islam is perceived uh, in, in in Europe, uh, meaning that you, you do have this whole narrative right in Europe, which is pretty widespread beyond the far right or beyond conservative parties. You have this idea that there is no separation between religion and politics, right? And I think that under that perspective, with the rise of political Islam, and I'm talking back in uh, the late 70s with the Islamic Revolution, with jihadism being born in the fight against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan and and other events in, in the MENA region, you have the growing feeling that political Islam seemed to be actually the true face of Islam, right? This willingness to conquer, to get access to power, but also to impose a set of norms and rules uh, over uh, others. So in that sense, I would say that history does not help. And an example that is uh, that we are talking about today, which is Iran, does not help at all, right? Because we're talking about an Islamic republic, about uh, a project and a vision that is uh, rooted in, in political Islam. But I think that today we keep, I mean, we still fail to distinguish between Islam as a religion uh, that is practiced by millions of Europeans every day without raising any issue. You do have specific issues, specific cases. I mean, uh, nobody denies that, right? And this is very different from a political religious ideology, which is political Islam, and which is being used at varying levels by an extreme minority of Muslims, be it in Europe or in Muslim-majority countries. Mm -hmm. So if we look at the security challenges that have been faced in Europe in the past decade and more, um, and, and I suppose especially the concern over the threat of homegrown terrorism and um, in some instances, lone actors who, you know, who carry out um, attacks in the name of Islam. How, how do you identify that particular type of ideology and how it takes hold? And, you know, what are the root causes which contribute to convincing usually young males um, to to perpetrate those kinds of deadly attacks in in the name of Islam? So regarding the 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 ideology, and, and that's a question that I often ask actually to my students uh, when I teach a seminar on radicalization and violent extremism, when asking them about the roots or uh, the birth of jihadist Salafism, many of them say eight centuries or 10th centuries, and we are actually talking about an ideology that has roughly more than half a century of existence, 
which was born, uh, I mean, when talking about contemporary jihadism, it was born, I think, with the uh, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, although it draws inspiration and uh, reflections from the intellectual work of other of other intellectual Islamists, such as uh, Said al-Qutb or uh, al-Mawdudin in Pakistan. But I would say that jihadism or jihadist Salafism, as we know it today, uh, was born, yes, in Afghanistan 50 years ago as a political religious ideology, which is based on the idea that the West has waged war, a global war against Muslims, and that it is the moral and religious duty of all Muslims to side with their fellow Muslim brothers and sisters and defend them wherever they they find themselves. Uh, So, of course, that ideology has evolved, and today you have dozens of different organizations with different agenda, but I think the the main underlying narrative is is that one. So, uh, and the ultimate goal of this ideology is actually to defend Muslims uh, with a view to reuniting them under uh, the resurrected caliphate. So bearing this in mind, uh, with regards to your second question, what makes it so convincing or attractive to youngsters in the West? I would say first that I think that the state of international relations in the Middle East and North Africa provides an incredible material for propaganda for these terrorist groups, be it the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, the multiple French uh, interventions in Libya, in Mali and other African countries, the war in in, in Yemen waged by Saudi Arabia, which is an ally of, of the U.S., the war in Syria, the Palestinian issue, the Rohingya issue, and so on. I mean, there are many examples that actually help to feed this narrative that there is a global war against Islam and against Muslims. And all these cases that I just mentioned are examples or uh, are the evidence of, of that narrative. And there are also places such as Syria, such as Palestine, uh, such as uh, the Xinjiang in China, where the West does not even lift a finger to, uh, to help Muslims. So I think that this uh, discourse is pretty attractive because it draws on a reality. I'm not saying that the reading is well, but it draws on fact that on facts that are uh, here. And finally, an, an additional argument I think which makes it very attractive is the existence of Islamophobia and anti-Muslim speeches and views in Western countries, because having Islamophobia in Europe or in the US or North America helps uh, organizations such as Al-Qaeda or Islamic State to to, to say, you cannot be Muslim and European at the same time. You see the laws against hijab, you see uh, the laws against the construction of minarets uh, in Europe. This means that you will never be part of them. So you have this kind of dichotomy of earth uh, versus them, 
which follows a bit the dichotomy uh, that was promoted by Samuel Huntington in The Clash of Civilization. So they use it in a reverse side, and that helps them playing with identity issues, uh, displaying the political and geopolitical cards to attract uh, youngsters from Western country. And I think that this is key in explaining it. That being said, we should not overestimate the role of ideology in these processes of radicalization. It's a big and important part, but uh, it's not the only one. Of course, um, there there are usually a multiplicity of factors, but um, just I mean, back to your point about the I suppose the propaganda value of you know ongoing conflicts, and you've given lots of examples there. I suppose um, there's also the the argument that you know there are uh, territorial disputes, there are um, ongoing conflicts in many many regions of the world, but they don't necessarily you know lead to or, or inspire a movement of terrorist activity, jihad, um, or an equivalent in other areas or amongst other groups. So, I mean, is there something distinctive that can be identified, uh, or is there something that can be noted within the religion of Islam that is powerful motivator or that somehow also contributes to to the inspiration behind some of these attacks. I mean, often terrorists who carry out lone wolf attacks or are involved in other plots, they cite um, Islam and they cite their religious belief as as a contributing factor or as a justification. Um, so is that unique as distinct from from other types of extremists or, or terrorists? I don't know whether it is unique, but I absolutely agree with you in the fact that uh, Islam is being used actually to make legitimate the whole fight. And actually, uh, the uh, the reference, the overwhelming reference to Islam in, in the propaganda and in the ideology, basically, of uh, jihadist Salafism, helps, I mean, brings the promise of material and immaterial rewards, especially in uh, once people die and they are supposed to start uh, a second life, which is the real life that all Muslims are preparing for uh, here on, on, on Earth. And I think that, yes, this does serve a very powerful um, narrative, because if you are promised and if you deeply believe that you will be rewarded with for what you do, people are even disposed and let's say they are even ready to die actually for this cause. It's not something that you see in many other forms of uh, violent extremism. And, and, I, and I think, yes, this is, um, this is a dimension that makes the discourse powerful. However, and, and this is the point uh, upon which I disagree with other scholars or other people who, who work in, in this field, I deeply believe that the political component of the jihadist Salafi ideology is much more uh, powerful and much more uh, overwhelming in the in the narrative in the propaganda than the religious one so when you look or you listen actually to the uh, audio releases or to the videos that are being published by organizations such as ISIS, such as Al-Qaeda or Boko Haram, they mostly talk about politics. 
and they mostly talk about social and economic concern, not that much about religion. So religion is the the umbrella under which everything is happening. It's also what provides legitimacy for these uh, worldviews. But I really have the feeling that at least from a Western perspective, we tend to underestimate the uh, political, I mean, the deeply political dimension of, of jihadism. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that if you recognize it or if you acknowledge the weight of politics in that ideology, that may raise some inconvenient questions uh, with regards to the link between this ideology and the foreign policy of several Western and non-Western states. Mm. How much of a concern should there be today in in the West, in Europe, in the US, etc.? Uh, arising from the existence of Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, various affiliated groups. Um, Do you think since the fall of the caliphate that that risk has has dramatically diminished or is it something that's still live? I think it has relatively diminished when it comes to the threat posed uh, specifically to Western countries, which again represents less than 10% of uh, I mean, the terrorist attacks that affected the West uh, represent between 5 and maximum 10% of all the jihadist attacks uh, perpetrated in the world. And 95%, I think, of the victims are Muslims and Muslim countries. Uh, that being said, yes, there was a decrease in terms of the intensity and the lethality of jihadist attacks in Western countries with the setbacks suffered by uh, ISIS, especially when it was a protostate. That was until uh, three to four years ago. Uh, But still, they do, I mean, jihadist jihadist terrorism does represent a threat. And actually, when you look at the latest uh, terrorism situation trend report that was published by Europol last year, and also the the last few years uh, earlier, we see that the jihadist threat remains at a whole level. Uh, Although it has lowered in terms of intensity, we do not see any more uh, massive terrorist attacks as we used to see uh, in the Bataclan, in Manchester or in Barcelona. Uh, We see, yes, lone wolves attacks or attacks with lower casualties. Uh, But we also need to bear in mind that these organizations, uh, as you rightfully said, are um, calling for lone wolf, lone wolf attacks. They are also, they have converted into transnational decentralized virtual movements uh, and they are calling calling their fellows to to attack at at any time uh, anywhere so i think they keep uh, representing uh, a threat to the west and and to to europe and this is something that we should not underestimate mm-hmm linking on or going on from that, you've also obviously focused a lot on Islamophobia. And I think some of your observations are really interesting there too, because I suppose, you know, on the one hand, you have a a view which is commonly held in, in some quarters that all Muslims are accountable or somehow responsible um, for the actions of authority. Uh, and that view can can take hold. Um, And then on the other hand, you have uh, sometimes a reluctance to maybe to address 
the issues around uh, extremism or political Islam for fear of provoking Muslims and for fear of being uh, accused of Islamophobia. So how do how do we square that circle so that we can have a healthy, open discussion and that, you know, extremists can be identified as what they are, but we can also start to build a more tolerant and inclusive and um, an understanding you know, plurality of, of view and uh, and coexistence in society. It's it's quite a challenge, I think. Absolutely, and uh, and I definitely understand your uh, your concern, and 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 I think that you referred here to two distinct phenomena, which I think that we need to distinguish clearly. One thing is the criticism of a religion or a religious practice or a a religious uh, value. And another thing is uh, Islamophobia, which can be defined as a form of racism that specifically affects and targets people who are Muslims or who are perceived as uh, Muslims. So Islamophobia, let's say, uh, is based on this idea that Islam is a monolithic block. And as you've said before, that all Muslims are made accountable to one supra-entity called uh, Islam. And um, in practice, when we are talking about Islamophobia, we talk not only about hate and hostility, but also discrimination, the use of violence against Muslims, their marginalization, and, and so on and so forth. So that is one phenomenon which I think should be condemned and that and, and I think that many European governments have been working on tools, policies and strategies in order to, to address it as as they have done and as they are doing with other forms of uh, racism and I think of anti-Semitism, anti-LGBTQ plus uh, behaviors and speech and, and so on and so forth. So this is one thing. And I think that this is very distinct, uh, very different from uh, criticizing one specific practice that happens in uh, in a specific context. So for instance, I mean, if, if we move uh, to concrete examples, I think that you can perfectly analyze what the Taliban are doing in Afghanistan and you can perfectly and uh, legitimately criticize the way that they treat women, for instance. But this is one thing. And I think that the danger is when this criticism moves from the single specific case to something rephrased as Islam has a problem with women. Right. So because by saying Islam has a problem with women, you just encapsulate or include two billion people from all over the world on the basis of of one single case. And I think that the criticism of religion, especially in democracies uh, where we live uh, nowadays, I think is completely I mean, it is legal. It is allowed. And I think it should be encouraged uh, if you want to make the mindset evolve. But this is very different from Islamophobia, which again think that that yes moves from particular cases to statement that uh, that will include all Muslims uh, from the world, yeah, for for different purposes. So and and I think this dis- this distinction, although theoretically. Uh, it seems to be pretty easy in practice, as as you have said, it's different uh, because people may want to criticize one one practice or one value or one norm, but they may not because they are afraid of of being uh, labeled as as somebody who is who holds Islamophobic views. 
Is part of the problem just a complete lack of understanding in the West? I mean, in terms of, you know, being able to distinguish between, um, you know, certain certain values that maybe are anathema um, to to the values that many of us hold dear or, you know, an inability to distinguish between the political Islam as distinct from the the religion as a whole. And is there is there a way that um, policymakers and, you know, the media well, the public, I suppose, in general, can be maybe better, better educated and help to understand. Because I do think the lack of, uh, you know, sometimes the lack of ability or willingness to criticize is is equally because of a fear of being labeled as Islamophobic. So you can't actually have a, a frank and open discussion either way, you know. Um, um, so maybe, I don't know, um, I'm just, uh, it's a question I would pose is, you know, how do we actually help to educate people a bit better about, about all of this? Yeah, I, I think that there is a huge effort in trying to literally demolish this myth of Islam equal a monolithic block. Mm. Uh, and I think that the more we show that we are talking about 2 billion people who come from different continents, cultures, uh, among which you find uh, over five percent of the total European population is mm. is Muslim itself, and that you show that you have different currents. You have people who are conservative, less conservative, liberals, mm. extremists, as in any other uh, religion. I think that that would be the first step. The second step is uh, what I have called trying to destroy the Homo Islamicus, which is a kind of uh, specific human species that belongs to this huge block, this huge entity called uh, Islam, and to which every single Muslim is made uh, accountable. In other words, when you compare, for instance, uh, you have a terrorist attack that just happened, uh, let's say, in uh, in France, um, you will see political leaders calling on Muslims to write down and publish communique to take the streets, not as French citizens, but as Muslims in order to condemn a terrorist attack. That sounds fine. My question then is, when this happens in New Zealand with Brenton Tarrant, do you ask every single white Christian to take the street and do it? You would never do so because in the end, you do assume that he is an individual. And I think that in the common thinking in Europe and the West in general, we still have not realized that Muslims are also individuals with their own views, their own way, their own practice of Islam. And instead of that, I think it's easier, intellectually speaking, just to imagine that there is this big substance called uh, Islam and that uh, all the Muslims are members of, of uh, this entity, right? And I, I like very much uh, an expression that Olivier Roy, the, the, the French political scientist, used to say. He's, he said that Islam is what Muslims say it is. It seems very logical, right? But I think that, in fact, and when, again, when you listen to certain political speeches or when you read the media, you, you, you don't find such, such a view, actually. So I think that uh, stressing, stressing the individuality uh, of each Muslim can be also a step towards uh, demolishing this kind of homogenizing view of uh, Islam and Muslims. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Thank you. That's that's um, a really interesting perspective. A final question for you is, um, I mean, obviously, a huge amount of money and resources are being spent across Europe in EU member states and in the UK at, you know, intercommunity dialogue, uh, intra interreligious dialogue, community engagement with uh, Muslim communities, often with, you know, certain certain organizations, sometimes self-appointed organizations that claim to represent the Muslim population when perhaps they do not. Certainly, I think the approach is well-intentioned in most cases. Do you think it works and do you think it can be improved? Um, what if you were advising the Spanish government where you're sitting or um, or any other government in Europe uh, as to how to actually try to maybe address the, the polarization and the othering of Muslims in Europe? What do you think would be the correct course. So I think <clears throat> to me, and, and this is this is actually an issue that I had the opportunity to discuss, I mean, with, with people here in Spain, but also in other European countries, in, in the US also. To me, the first and fundamental s- step is to engage positively with Muslims. What does that mean? It means not engaging with them just to solve crime-related and terrorist-related issues. Because in a society where they are already marginalized, where the media or political leaders talk about them every single week in negative terms to underline controversies, problems, terrorist attacks, or whatsoever, how can you pretend that engaging with them to fight against crime, to fight against terrorism, to fight against any, any single issue that you uh, indirectly relate to this collective is going to produce uh, an interesting and productive engagement? I don't think that that, that would happen. And actually, in the fieldwork that I have done on the work of um, for instance, I've worked uh, recently on the role of religious actors in preventing violent extremism. What these re- religious actors told me here uh, in Spain was that they were called on regularly by uh, security and intelligence bodies just to check if uh, this or that is a threat or not. Uh, but otherwise, you don't have any kind of positive engagement of, hey, let's work on ecology. Let's work on mobilizing citizens or making school more inclusive. So if you associate their engagement constantly with fighting against a given threat, I don't think it will work. I cannot tell like what is the evaluation today of all the engagement that has been done. I think there were some interesting and good experiences in certain contexts. So there is no general rule of it works or it doesn't work. But I think that you have to make them actors in in that fight, not only the objects of uh, of these policies. So I think on one hand, they should be engaged much more broadly on a, another range of issues because they are uh, citizens like others and they are therefore part of society. And on the other hand, you should make them actors and not come with the kind of one size fits all solution that they are obliged to apply. Mm. I think that's um, a wise way perhaps to, to end our discussion. So um, thank you. It's been it's been really interesting and very wide ranging. Thank you for your really candid responses uh, and for a very thought provoking discussion. Lisa, really delighted to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on and share this episode. 
You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter-Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website. Thank <laughs> you.